Luke chapter 8. Last Sunday we saw a woman anoint the feet of Jesus and the subsequent transition into to the parable of the two debtors. Today we're going to look at the parable of the soils, a picture of how the word of God affects different people's hearts. So let's go into the text. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. This is an attitude of gratitude. These women were thankful for the gift that God had given them, so they followed Jesus and provided for him from their substance. We spoke before of thankfulness. It's always good to be thankful. But this goes even deeper than that. Sometimes we whine and complain about our circumstances in life. But how often are we thankful for God for the things that he's given us? Do you live in a home, an apartment, or even a shelter with a roof over your head and climate control? Do you get at least one meal a day? Do you have the right to vote? Well, congratulations. You're doing much better than more than 75% of the world's population. We should get into the habit of thanking God every day for something. You know, I got into the habit of thanking God for things that I don't have. You know, the more you read the news, it's it's frightening. There's a flesh-eating virus out there, and there's the West Nile virus, and now they're concerned that the bird flu is going to come over here and kill a lot of people. And i got to tell you, I thank God that I don't have Lyme disease. I've been living in a part of Monroe uh, that's very rural, very wooded, for the last six or seven years. All of our neighbors have had Lyme disease at least once. My family and I never got it. Something sounds like something silly, but I'm thankful for that. I don't want to go through Lyme disease. So I appreciate the time that the Lord has staved that off on our family. But how many are thankful by their actions and their demeanor? The Bible says that faith without works is dead. I remember not too long ago, I was talking to somebody who was serving in the children's ministry, and I'm, I'm very thankful to, for the job they do because, you know, they, have to li- they get to listen to the CD afterwards, and it can be a tough job. But I was blown away because all they, they couldn't stop telling me of the excitement that they had with the kids and doing the projects. And that's maybe not what I expected to hear. It was pretty awesome, though. But I remember I did the job uh, doing the, the children's ministry for a while, and it could be pretty tough, especially with the toddlers. The trick is to keep them all occupied because when one starts screaming, then another one starts screaming. It's like a domino effect. And they all start screaming. It's a symphony of screaming. So it could be a tough job, but... You know, these people just love what they're doing. So when you go to pick up your kid today, please thank them for, for watching your children. But what does the scripture say about Mary Magdalene? We hear a lot about it. You know, the Da Vinci Code is out and there's tradition about Mary Magdalene. But this is what the Bible says about her. Seven de- demons were cast out of her. She supported Jesus in his ministry. She was at the crucifixion site. She visited the tomb. And she was one of the first to see the risen Christ. That's it. Tradition and people assume that she was a prostitute, but that's not supported in Scripture. The twelve disciples are not mentioned by name, but they they mention the twelve and also the three women in a favorable light. The Bible actually elevates, and I've said this before, I did a service that kind of focused partially on it. The Bible elevated the status of women in this period of time, contrary to the other writings at this period where other contemporaries just wrote about, it was a male-dominated society. So they basically focused on the achievements of men, but not women, but not with the scripture. 
Um, and the only other writings at this time, okay, in this era, that actually elevated women were maybe fertility cults or goddess worship, but that was it. But I bring up the Da Vinci Code because I remember we brought that up in uh, Easter service. It's, it's made its big deb- debut. But it's also another one of Dan Brown's fallacies that, that Christianity suppressed women. That's not true. As a matter of fact, if you, if you notice, the movie actually is a flop. If you look at a lot of the critics, they really, there was a lot of hype about it and nobody's really that excited about it. As a matter of fact, Dan Brown initially said it was make-believe and then when, of course, the camera gets on him, he says how he really believes in these conspiracy theories. Then when he got sued, he said it was make-believe again. Now he believes it again. So he, got, he doesn't even believe his own work. So let's go to verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered and others had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and it was trampled down and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So now we're getting into the parable of the soils. Well, let's break this down by, first of all, I love to use my imagination. Um, just think about as Jesus is speaking, a, you know, a sower, somebody with a, maybe a bag of seed and he's going by and he's taking the seed and he's just throwing it, throwing it wherever, and it's falling on different types of soils. So think about it literally, right? but keeping in mind the spiritual connotation, which was always Jesus' goal in the parables. Understanding the ultimate goal for sowing seed is for it to reach good soil, to germinate, to grow to maturity, and to yield an abundant crop. And in a spiritual sense, to reach a good fertile heart, for the word of God to do something in in your heart, to help change your life, to help have your mind parallel with what God thinks, and to produce fruit. Faith without works is dead, right? Verse 6. It speaks about some of the seed that fell on on rocks here, rocky areas. Now, Matthew 13, 6 adds this. It says, But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. So in reading about the terrain of Israel, apparently there's a lot of limestone or rocky soil in that area with the thin veneer, I'm sorry, rocky area, terrain, with a thin veneer of soil on top of it, maybe a few inches. So the seed will germinate for a period of time, and then eventually as the sun comes out and scorches it, because the roots can't go down very far to seek moisture, it kills the vegetation. It happens every year at my home. We bought a home, and there was a a structure underground, and part of it was concrete. And it was only down maybe a few inches underneath the, the soil level. So every year in the springtime, the, the water comes and all of a sudden the grass starts growing. And for the whole spring, you can't tell where this structure is. But when the summer comes and now the, the drought starts to hit and it starts be- beating down on the lawn, right, that whole area you could see in the shape of the, the concrete structure underneath because it totally wipes out that grass because there's no root. It can't get moisture. So he's right. Verse 7 speaks about the thorns and the weeds. The thorns and the weeds will completely uh, will compete with the newly germinated seed for water and nutrients. Thorns and weeds are more aggressive than the original crop, and a lot of times they end up stifling the crop. In verse 8, he talks about the good soil here. 
Obviously, the ideal soil is that soil that's deep, it's full of nutrients, it's well-watered, and devoid of weeds and thorns. In a spiritual sense, the ideal soil will produce a great abundance of crops, but the ideal heart will produce a great abundance of fruit. Having ears to ears, having ears to hear, what is Jesus saying here? Isn't that what our ears are for? Well, if you think about it, you take in a multitude of sounds every day. There's so much stimulus. You could be talking to somebody in the hall and maybe even overhear part of somebody's conversation or overhear music. So you have so much that comes into your ears and it pretty much, hopefully most of it reaches your brain. But we also filter out some white noise, some noise that we don't want to hear because we only hear what we want to hear. Isn't that true? Now, if you don't think that's true, especially your husbands, give me permission to ask your spouse that question. If you hear everything that, uh, you know, if they hear everything she's saying. But we've all heard this. Don't you listen when I talk? And we don't necessarily do it on purpose. I know that uh, sometimes I'm studying for maybe my message and my wife's talking to me and I'm, I'm always listening to her when she talks to me. But basically... What? I'm being serious. <laughs> then she'll, she'll leave to do some errands. And about 15 minutes later, I think in my head, where'd she go? So I call her up and I say, babe, where are you? She goes, I told you I'm going to this place and then this place. It's in there somewhere, but I just can't pull it out. But anyway, it's even worse when we, don't, when we tune out God, in a sense. When we're tuning God out, it's, it's not necessarily, well, it's not at all a good thing. So the question is, where is our heart on this issue when it comes to hearing what God is saying, but just being selective in what we want to hear? Verse 9 and 10. It says, Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, that kind of cross-references Isaiah 6, 8 through 10. So let's turn there. Isaiah 6, 8 through 10. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and be healed. It's almost like God is saying, Are you hearing what I'm telling you? The people weren't listening. It's so clear, how come you can't see it? I'm even amazed how many times Christians can be shown something biblically, but still reject it because their heart isn't right. They want to go their own way. And it wasn't any different in Isaiah's day. We can make a lot of parallels with how we deal with the Lord and the children of Israel. But Isaiah had a message from God, but God warned him from the outset that his message would not be received. Isaiah still had to give God's message because at some point, the people would be judged by God's word, confirming the position of their heart. That's a dangerous place to be, confirming the position of their heart. To hear God's word and then to reject God and then for God sometime later to say, but you have no excuse because you heard my word. 
Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. I want to go through that one too. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. A lot of you are familiar with this passage. It says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So God's word is often, well, hopefully, you know, obviously the intent is for good. It's for people to follow the Lord. It's for people to repent of their sins and to get in line with God's thinking. However, it's, it's used many times for good, but the scary part is that even if his word isn't penetrating to salvation, it may be to solidify the person's hard heart for judgment. So God's word, it says right here, will achieve either goal. Okay? And the, the, the choice is ours, what we want to do with it. As a young man, I rejected God's word many times. Until finally, ten years ago, I received and acted upon it. I don't know. One more time of my rejection might have sent me to hell. I don't know. It's a possibility. But it's another reason for me to give thanks to God, to be thankful, because God gave me one more chance. I just ask any of you that have heard God's word over and over and over. You've heard it from a Christian relative. Maybe you've heard it on a radio station. Maybe you've read the Bible a little bit, but you just, you just it's not doing anything for you. Please don't play Russian roulette with your salvation. Make that profession of faith today because you may not get another chance. I want to turn also Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16. Nineteen through thirty one. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments and hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides this, there's between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. Now, you ever tell people something plainly and they don't care? And and I'm really trying to drive this point home with the soil, with the heart. You know, how, how a soil is prepared to receive the word of God. Either that or it's just rocky soil, it's thorny soil, it's weedy soil. And it just it doesn't want to hear the word of God. That's basically what this all amounts to. 
And the, the, the parables was shown was to show that even if one rises from the dead, they still won't believe. And Jesus was speaking about himself, though he rose from the dead. Did the world turn to Christianity? Did the Roman Empire change? No. It was one soul, one heart at a time. Those who really are interested in the eternal will stick around for the answers and be persistent until they get it. How many times did the disciples bumble and fumble over each other and have little conversations while Jesus was ahead of them saying, what did he mean? Did it mean that we were supposed to take bread? Of course, Jesus, like they're whispering, like Jesus, he, he could read their thoughts. He's like, no, this is, this is what it is. But they stuck with Jesus. They followed him. They, they wanted to know the secrets of the mysteries of, of, of the kingdom of heaven. And it's no different now. How bad do we really want it? How bad do we want salvation? How bad do we really want eternal life and to be called children of God? It's really easy, but our heart has to be ripe to receive it. Verse 11. Back to Luke 8. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. But these have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. And the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So this is where now Jesus unlocks the mysteries of this parable. The seed is equal to the word of God. Soils are a picture of different hearts of different people and where they're at. The Hebrew word for heart is libeb, which actually means it's a combination. The Hebrew is a poetic language. It's a combination of our intellect, our emotion, and our will. And those three really make up who we are, our intelligence, our emotion, and our will. Okay? So th this is what we have here with the heart. And it actually transfers to our vernacular, which where we get the words heartless or lion-hearted or cold-hearted. It's not necessarily meaning that four-chamber muscle that pumps blood throughout our body. It means it's our will, our emotion, and our intellect, who we are as a person. And also in the Old Testament, God will, God's will was usually performed through cataclysmic events. But in the age of grace, God's will for humanity is propagated from the power of his word, from the Holy Spirit changing hearts one soul at a time. It's that win, build, send mentality of Calvary Chapel. Win a person to Christ, that patient evangelism that Lloyd Pulley speaks about. You sit with somebody, you build a bridge. And it's not for a pretense, it's not fake, it's because you love them. It's because they're another human being who's also made in God's image. You sit with them, you build that bridge with them, and you win a person to Christ by your actions, by your words. You build them, you, you stick with them. Now that you don't just kind of dump them and send them on the side, you stay with them, you talk to them. As they have questions for you, you help to build them. And then you send them. Now they're ready to be sent to do the same thing. Win, build, send. Win, build, send. It's a great concept. But it's our job to sow the seeds. Again, some of us think it's just about what we say. It's our actions and our words. Again, people really don't care much about what you have to say about God if your actions don't support your words. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to think you're a hypocrite. So the birds here, verse 12. The birds stealing the seed are the picture of the devil. 
Now, it really bugs me because I love, I'm like a lawn fanatic. If you come to my house, you know, if there's any, you know, little bald spots, i got to put seed there. And my wife thinks I'm crazy. I have this tree that it drops these, like, looks like satellites, looks like Sputniks from the tree. And they fall on the grass and they get embedded. And I have to, like, dig them out of the lawn and just kind of throw them away. So I'm a lawn fanatic. And when I throw the, the grass seed, when I throw, sow the seed, it really bugs me when it becomes bird food because that's not my intention. So how much more does it grieve God when a person foolishly gives in to the devil's lies? Like people will say, the Bible is full of contradictions. I'll tell you what, people who say that, they don't know. It's a way for them to kind of get you off of them. They don't want to hear about the Lord. I think about I, I can't forget the analogy of the jets. When the jets are, you know, when there's a dogfight in the sky, they have uh, heat-seeking missiles that lock onto the jet in front of them. So when that missile is locked onto the jet and it's going to blow it up, the jet in front sends out chaff. It's like a burst of, like, magnesium or something. It's really hot. And the jet, the jet, the jet banks and the missile follows the chaff and blows up the chaff instead of the jet. So why am I even saying this? <laughs> now, keep with me here. Because when people think you're on them and they hear about God, it does something to them. Their heart is going to be either prepared to receive God's word and they're going to take a deep breath and humble themselves and submit to hear that word of God or they're going to fight you with everything they have. And sometimes they'll say, well, the Bible is full of contradictions. And then you say, well, can you give me one example? And usually I've never actually had anybody who could give me an example. Well, I'll read it and I'll get back to you. Hey, that's a good idea. But people believe the most absurd ideas. They, they won't believe the Bible, but they'll believe the most absurd ideas. And this is a picture of the devil taking that seed. I'm going to read something to you that's really going to blow you away. As a matter of fact, I thought it was a joke at first. But it comes from the Telegraph. It's a, a periodical. And it says this. This is what people will believe, the intellectuals in the world. It says, The human family tree has been thrown into disarray by evidence that the ancestors of man and chimpanzees kept on mating with each other for a million years or more. Evidence? How did they get evidence of men and chimpanzees mating for a million years? I really don't even want to ask that question. But, I don't know, cave drawings of a man and a chimpanzee across gazing into each other's eyes with a candlelight <laughs> dinner? I don't know. So, I just... No, I gotta... But it says this, moving on. It says, studies of fossils have suggested that the ancestors of humans had started to walk upright seven million years ago. A study released today by Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts Institute of Technology suggests that men interbred with their ape cousins until at least 6.3 million years ago, making the boundaries between the species fuzzy. If this is what's coming out of MIT and Harvard, we're in a lot of trouble, people, as a society. But I can only guess that um, because of the... Now, I have to be careful how I say this because I got in trouble a few Sundays ago. Because of the lack of transitional species, after <laughs> those of you who are a regular part of the body know what that means, over, you know, over a million fossils have been found and they haven't found one transition. They've tried, you know, Ramapithecus and Piltdown and they all turned out to be hoaxes or, or mistakes and there's really not one transitional species out of all the millions of fossils. So, because they can't find the link between man and monkey, they have to come up with these theories. Now, there's a few things. I thought, in my mind, this, the body is comprised of billions of cells. They're so tiny you can't see them. The body is comprised of them all. 
Now, if you have a, a fish that decides they want to grow limbs and walk on land, right? Uh, how many, there's so many small, I mean, if it was possible, it's not. There would have to be so, such small cellular changes over time that a fish tried. He tried to pump out an arm and maybe he was successful and then over his life he died. Okay, then another uh, fish decided, I'm going to get two arms out. And eventually, this fish would, whatever, two arms and two legs. And this is ridiculous, isn't it? But the point is, the cellular, cellular changes are so small that it couldn't happen in the fish's lifetime. So they said, yeah, you're right. There is no transition between a fish and, uh, I guess, an amphibian or whatever. So what we're going to say is there's punctuated equilibrium. It takes millions of years of slow cellular changes. But then when there's a transition, it happens real fast and you don't see a transitional fossil. Hey, that's a good idea. Punctuated equilibrium. But it, it just doesn't work. It, they have to make kind of make up new rules for each thing that happens in evolution. So I, I still don't get it. I mean, okay, so men and women of the same species had children and had generations, and then a million years ago, men decided we don't like women anymore. We like chimps. I mean, <laughs> and now we're back to humans again. I mean, where's the where's the logic in this? Not only that, you, it, def, it defies the science. Remember, we worship at the altar of Jesus Christ. We worship at the altar of God. These scientists who are against God worship at the altar of science, which is always changing. That's their altar. But they're changing the rules because people mating with animals doesn't... I can't even believe I'm having this discussion. <laughs> but it's, it's right here, you know. I'm just trying to work with the material that I got here. So, again, inter, between species, you don't have... Half man, half animal, and so on and so forth. So let's just leave it at that. But these are the things that people want to believe in instead of the Word of God. 25,000 manuscripts, just in the New Testament alone, in Greek, in Coptic, in Aramaic, in Hebrew, in several languages all over the continent, 25,000 pieces here, pieces there, Dead Sea Scrolls. When you put them all together, they all match up. How is that possible? But we don't want to believe in the Bible, right? So the devil does steal those uh, seeds. And I also think about even the Da Vinci Code novel. People say, well, he makes some good points. What if it's true? Well, what if you do your research? You know, why don't you check it out to see if it's true? I mean, I read The Three Little Pigs, and that makes a lot of good you know, sense in it, but I don't trust it for my salvation. <laughs> Heck, I think the pig with the brick house should have put the other two to work for protecting them. <laughs> That'll teach him to use substandard building materials again. Where was the permit office? I don't get it. But anyway, okay, let's go back to the, the text here. The wayside. The, the, the seeds fall on the wayside. Uh, this is a picture of the much-traveled road, the footpath, the wide road that leads to destruction. There's too much stimuli on this path. There's too many distractions. On this road, you can't get quiet time with God. You've got so much stimuli that you're, you're off in different directions. You can't have that bonding time with God. It reminds me of glue. You ever read anything like uh, if you're going to glue something together and it says you have to put the two objects together, you have to put the glue and kind of rub it together and let it set. It's called set time. could be 12 hours, could be 24 hours. If a few hours goes by and you pull those, those objects apart and try to put them back together, they probably won't stick because you didn't give it bonding time. It's the same thing with us and the Lord. It's not like we can say, well, I, I want it, I'm interested in God, but I'm, I want to follow this and I want to follow that, and you just don't get that bonding time with the Lord. You, just, you have to find that time to get close to him, to seek him out. These, these things are very important. So verse 13, 
It says, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Matthew 13, 21 adds this. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Possibly this is the emotional hearer who responds quickly with with interest, but over time his interest wanes and he doesn't continue because he's not abiding. These people have a Jesus experience as if it's a one-shot deal and it's done. There was a big Jesus movement in the 60s. Even parts of Hollywood and the music industry was carried away with the Jesus movement. But it would be interesting to find out how many of those people that started off and got excited about the emotional experience, the Jesus movement, how many of them are still walking Christians? Probably not many. The problem here, as Matthew's Gospel elaborates, is the sun. That's S-U-N. It's a picture of trials and temptations. These are good for the Christian to help him or her grow. Trials help us to grow. They strengthen us. They give us perseverance. They build character. But it's also good to help to expose the false convert. These are the ones without the root. They dry up. It withers. Nothing um, grows there. So the key here is the root. With the shallow roots, can't soak up moisture, and the vegetation dies. Shallow roots, shallow people. These are the people who bear the Christian name but have no depth. They're very picky about their commitment to him because they're very pampered and they don't want to do anything that's going to cause too much of a commitment. Now, this isn't a plug for people to serve. We have plenty of servants. Uh, So, you know, I wonder sometimes how many Christians would continue their service or their faith if tomorrow Christianity became illegal. Read about the Diocletian persecution. And a lot of these emperors, somebody would say, oh, we don't want to pick on the Christians anymore, and they'd breathe a sigh of relief. Then another emperor would come in real nasty and make some type of edict and start tormenting the Christians again, torturing them, trying to burn all the books. You know. So the Diocletian Edict, check it out, of 302 AD, how many people would still follow the path uh, if that happened today in this country? When trials come, we are certainly tempted to rely on the tangible. Drug abuse to medicate our hurting. Impure relationships for instant gratification. Manipulation and taking matters into our own hands because God's taking too long. That's what the sun does to some people. They just, they can't wait on God and they jump. They blink. Okay? Verse 14. It says, And the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. In Matthew 13:22, it speaks of the deceitfulness of riches. Now, this person never weeded out their heart. They want the best of both worlds, the temporal and the spiritual. They allow too many worldly things to distract them. It reminds me of, remember that story with Elisha? He had like a protege, Gehazi. And Naaman the Syrian had come. He had leprosy and he he was looking to be healed. And he was told that Elisha could, could heal him. So he goes to Elisha and he heals Naaman through the power of God. And Naaman wants to bless Elisha with all these goods, you know, whatever he had, horses and and food and all these spices, whatever. He wanted uh, Elisha to have that. And Elisha's heart was right. It was the power of God. He didn't feel he should benefit. It wasn't right. He said, no, just take your goods and go on your way. The Lord's blessed you. Well, Gehazi, who was, again, mentored by Elisha, he decides after the coast is clear, he's going to sneak out of the camp and go after Naaman the Syrian. And he asked him, he, he made up some story about he could use some of those goods, right? So Naaman gives it to him and he takes it with him and tries to hide it. 
Well, of course, Elijah, being the man of God that he is, finds out. And he explains to Gehazi that there's going to be a curse on him, and he becomes leprous. And I also believe his family was, was also uh, afflicted with that, that affliction. But name, or Gehazi's heart was worldly. It wasn't good enough that he could sit at the feet of the Lord. It wasn't good enough to be mentored by Elisha. He wanted those worldly things. He wanted the best of both worlds. Many can be wealthy and be great Christians, but other believers believe the lie and deceitfulness that riches and worldly things will make their life complete. I have an uncle, I won't tell you which one, but this guy, ever since I've been a kid, my wife's laughing, he's always talked about winning the lottery. I mean, decades have gone by. He still hasn't won that stinking lottery. I can't imagine how much money he spent. He could have put it into account and probably done well for himself. But for decades, my, my uncle's been talking about winning the lottery. Like winning the lottery is going to make his life better. And he's kind of, I guess, a little miserable because he hasn't won the lottery. But it's a shame to waste your life on that deceitfulness, that belief that that's going to happen. But And looking at like weeds and crops and stuff, out of thousands of blades of grass, a handful of weeds can give you quite a problem. And sometimes people act like weeds. Instead of working together to propagate God's word, they can only see things from their own selfish perspective. Weeds do this. Weeds will do this all the time. They act alone. They're loners. They're selfish. They're destructive. They destroy as much of the grass as possible because they're seeking their own desires. And again, I'm a lawn fanatic, and somebody told me once that if you have a thick, healthy, tight lawn, Okay, with root, the roots that are really intertwined, Joe, you don't need weed and feet because they're, they're, it's almost like they're immune and they're so tight that the weeds can't really get in there. And I didn't believe that until this year. I finally got my lawn where I want it. So don't come to my house and start throwing stuff on my lawn. But I got my lawn the way I wanted. It's tight. The weeds are thick. And you know what? I didn't need weed and feed this year. Now, what am I saying that for because I'm a lawn nut? No. I can transfer that to the body of Christ. If we together, as I'm not just saying at Calvary Chapel Crossfield, as Christians in general, if we're tight and we're acting like those blades of grass and we're intertwined with each other and our root system is deep and those roots are intertwined, the weeds can't come in. Satan comes in and can destroy when Christians are fractioned and they're splintered and they're always fighting with each other. That's when Satan comes in to destroy. So we need to take a lesson from the lawn. Verse 15. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Good soil. It has depth. It has a provision for the expansion of the roots. This is a type of person who's correctable and has an open mind to the things of God. A good lawn or a good, good soil has moisture, water. In the Bible, the washing of the water of the word it represents the word of God. This is a type of person who seeks after God and wants to hear the things of God. A good lawn, a good soil, I got lawn on the brain. A good soil has nutrients and food. It's someone who seeks, who's looking to seek and abide after God. The sun is not the enemy anymore. The trials and tribulation now help that person grow. And of course, we can't leave out God who is the great tiller of the soil. Again, I, years ago, before I was a Christian, I had crummy soil. But I guess through things in my life, God helped to till that soil in me. He helped to break it up. And now I was able to receive 10 years ago the seed, and it grew, and it, it flourished. So God is the great tiller of the soil. True salvation is evident by the fruit of the believer. It doesn't mean that we're saved by works, but it's actually very hard not to bear fruit if you are truly a believer. And for those of you who don't know what fruit is, it's 
basically the manifestations of your inward heart. When you bear fruit, uh, it's like, you know, a tree bears fruit when a tree is healthy. When you bear fruit, you, you know, it's, it's the things you say, your attitude, your actions, the way you love people. That's fruit. That's because you've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourself. You know, it's a gift of God. And you bear that fruit. So you actually have to work very hard if you're a Christian and abiding in him. It's almost, well, it is counterproductive. You have to work really, really hard not to bear fruit. Because even if you don't realize it in your life, other people will see your life and they'll see that fruit in your life. Verse 16. So Jesus now changes directions a little bit. He says, no one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on the lampstand, that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear, for whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. Reflecting the light of Christ. Nobody in their right mind would want to dampen the hope that they feel inside. To me, I liken it to how hard is it to keep quiet when you know, you're married and, and your wife's pregnant. Like, you've got to tell everybody. You're just so excited. We're going to have a baby. It's exciting. Same thing with a wedding. Look at my ring. Look at my ring. Look, we're going to get married. This is something that when you have that, that hope in you, you can't keep it to yourself. It's the same thing with the light of Christ. You can't. You, it's crazy to put that lamp under a bed or cover it with a, a bushel or basket, as Jesus says. When you have that light of Christ, you put it at the highest spot so when people walk in, they see that light. That's what, the, that's what we're looking for. So you want to reflect Christ in word and deed. And verse 17, he says that nothing in secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Now, secrets to be revealed. Now, for bad and for good, let me start with for bad. All the conspiracies and the government cover-ups and all of, even our dirty little secrets that we hide, that we think that we're hiding from people. The Lord knows. I don't know how that's all going to come to light, but... You know, it's kind of a good incentive to lead a holy life. And for good, there was a time that Jesus revealed his mysteries of God to his disciples. There was, little by little, he would feed them tidbits of of the word of God, of the mysteries of God. And eventually, after the resurrection, they started getting the whole picture. They had the Holy Spirit, and they started to get and understand all those mysteries of God. And likewise, the disciples, all those secrets, those intimate conversations with Jesus, they're recorded right here for all of us to see. So those secrets have been revealed. Everybody is going, will know about them if they want to. And verse 18, this is an interesting uh, portion of scripture. Take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. This seems a little unfair until you really understand it. What do you mean? So if I have a lot of stuff, the Lord's going to give me more, and that poor guy who has nothing, he's going to take everything away so he has nothing? Understand what he's talking about. If you're diligent with the things of God, God will bless you more with his wisdom and godly success and responsibilities. But those who have a little light and revelation and are foolish with it and squander it, will have everything taken away from them. They don't have the, um, they don't have the ability, they don't have the um, accountability, I'm, I'm trying to find the word, to actually take the things of God and use them wise, wisely. They squander them. So God's not going to give them more responsibilities. Take heed how you hear. What do you do with God's truths? Do you ignore it? Do you meditate it? Do you think about it? You try to say, well, the pastor said something and, 
you know, I'd like to know more about that. Or do you say, eh, I got things to do today. What do you do with the truths that you receive? And going back to the soils, the soils, the passage of scripture deals solely with the heart of mankind. Where do you fit in out of all those soils? Think about your own self and your own heart. Where do you fit in with those soils? Is it good soil? Is it rocky soil? Are there a lot of thorns and weeds that need to be taken out? Which is it? If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, has the word of God landed on good soil, or are you just putting your time in today? Did you come today because somebody asked you to, because you felt good about doing your one-day-a-week thing, or do you have good soil? Or are you hearing what I'm saying? You know, did you hear everything I said today? Or do I kind of sound like Charlie Brown's teacher? Remember that? It's just kind of coming in there, but none of it's sticking. You know, what is it? If you're a Christian, has Christian become a way of life? And, you know, you, you kind of, your seed took root a little bit. It started to germinate. And you, you kind of built your little plant. But it's only about this high and just not bearing any fruit. And it's been this high for 10 or 15 years and you haven't done anything with it. Or do you look forward to receiving God's word? Are you paying attention? Are you taking notes? Are you studying on your own? You know, it, it, we shouldn't just be coming on Sunday to see to read the word of God. We should be studying on our own. We should be praying on our own. Right? We should be fellowshipping with other believers. We want to learn more. Either way, Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, seek me. God says, seek me out while, I, while I'm still f- can be found. Come, come to me. Seek me. God is always asking us to, to, to be after him, not for him to have to chase us around. Don't wait for God to get your attention. Don't wait for a tragedy in your life to get your soil tilled. That's, te- that's definitely not fun. Do it the easy way. Or worse yet, don't harden your heart like Pharaoh. So he hardened his heart to the point of no return. Seek him on your own. Let's pray. What do you do with God's truths? Do you ignore it? 